Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 159. The Weekly Word Podcast is a resource for ultra-endurance athletes. We not only discuss ultra-endurance training, mindset, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, we dive deep into the lifestyle of endurance training. As many of you know, endurance training requires quite a sacrifice. And in order for you to get from hitting enter on the race entry to the start line, a lot needs to happen. The obvious is always the training, and we discuss plenty of that here. But there's a considerable space between the training and the start line. And that is what we try to dive deep into here on the Weekly Word Podcast. Beyond the training, how do you reach your endurance potential? How do we navigate these training hours with our family and career? What is the mindset needed to persevere through some difficult training phases despite a career and busy family life? Helping athletes understand, navigate, embrace the endurance lifestyle and its benefits, that's what we're trying to do. And for some, guide them through the transformation it can bring about. We all went pro in something other than this sport we endeavor. And here on the Weekly Word Podcast, we try to help you navigate that terrain. These endurance adventures that many of you are signed up for or are curious about are milestones, incredible achievements, ones that remain with us for the rest of our lives. One of the many reasons I love this coaching is because most of the athletes involved are celebrating one of the best, most meaningful days of their life. Not only unlocking endurance potential that they knew deep down inside they had, but also achieving something on the far edge of what they ever deemed possible. Since you're listening to this, the spark within you has been ignited. You're curious to find out what kind of endurance athlete you can be. Less about speed, more about how far can I go? What else can I achieve? And why not me? Why can't I do these? Of course you can. You don't settle. It's time to push beyond the boundaries of what we thought was possible and reach the endurance athlete potential we always knew deep down inside we had. Welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. This week, I wanted to share the live Q&A we had a few weeks ago. We opened up Zoom to all that want to join and ask some questions regarding all things ultra endurance. We had a great hour of discussion and I look forward to doing these quarterly. I hope you're able to join. We send out the invite and the link in the weekly word newsletter. So be sure to sign up for that, not only to stay informed, but also a deeper dive into the mindset component of ultra endurance. Some questions this week revolve around how to structure a return to swim training. Now that we're coming out of this pandemic, when should I reduce strength training regarding a race or regarding in general as my training load increases? When should I shift from zone two to other zones and and change the type of training I'm doing, predominantly zone two, or how much zone three, zone four do I insert? How should I train for multiple varied ultra events happening close together? How do I time strength and interval work amidst running a 50K every week? That was actually a great discussion. Plant-based nutrition advice for high volume training. What is the value of zone two while training under 10 hours per week? How should I train to manage fueling and hydration for unsupported ultra adventures? What daily information is most valuable from the athlete to their coach? When should I field test? And How do I deal with some injuries, especially calf pains or shin splints and so forth? So I hope you enjoy this live Q&A session recording, and I look forward to hearing any feedback you might have. Enjoy. I should probably first introduce uh, the team. We have David, uh, my trustworthy assistant coach joining us today. The full team is here as well as Emily. Um, our nutritionist and wellness expert, all things lifestyle and so forth. The things that I just can't seem to figure out. (laughs) So 
But with that said, we can take on nutrition questions, we can take on strength questions, we can take on mindset questions, um, whatever we feel we want to dive into today. It's an open topic and um, hopefully we'll keep it somewhat endurance related, but I'll try to answer or the team will try to answer it whatever we can. So with that being said, does anybody want to get going with a question? Hey, Chris, uh, I got a quick question here. Sure. First off, I want to say thanks for uh, hosting this live Q&A and all the content that you guys uh, put out there. It's really helpful. Thank what type you. of advice uh, would you give to an athlete returning to swimming, given basically, you know, 2020 and no swimming? Uh, how would you kind of structure that? That is a great question. And one I'm surprised has not come up um, amongst our athletes in that format. Well, there's a way, there's a variety of ways we can return to swimming because we'll go backwards first and see how after a while, even doing stretch cords, if you're not applying those concepts in the pool, run out of runway. And so therefore we would probably have stopped doing stretch cords somewhere in the summer or um, early fall last year. Again, A, because we're not applying that strength and that movement properly. And B, we didn't know that we would be this long without pools. But then as we enter back into the pools, there's a, two ways we can do it. We can do multiple workouts a week um, that are shorter in distance, let's say 1,500 to 2,000 yards, and focus on them being good quality, staying connected to our stroke, and actually being able to do the intervals and the intention of the workout successfully. So let's say you're swimming hundreds that you're able to do them on some sort of interval, obviously not as fast as you used to maybe be able to, but that you're at least able to start getting repeats in and some focus around the swimming. Now, many of us don't have access to pools multiple times a week. So we have our, you know, reserved one hour here and there or 45 minutes. So there I would focus on getting in the maximum amount of yards in that hour or 45 minutes, once or twice a week. But I do not recommend swimming straight through. We still wanna break that up a little bit with sets of 200s and 50s and 75s and 100s so that we're A, getting the rest and can adjust our technique and stroke as we're getting fatigued and reset and not just doing repetitions at a, in a sloppy sense, as well as we wanna also be able to connect with where we're at currently swimming hundreds and 75s and 50s. So I would usually structure that and saying, I wanna do something that's a little bit longer, maybe a 200, two or three of them, then go to shorter stuff that I can repeat multiple times with um, some rest. And then because I'm running out of steam and um, muscular endurance from being not being in the pool so long, I'd quickly switch to 50s and 25s. Maybe shorter rest, maybe 25s with only 10 seconds rest, but each one of those 25s and each one of those 50s with maybe 15, 20 seconds rest is focused completely on stroke, good freestyle technique, a lot of catch-up drilling. This is a great time to focus on the catch-up drill in general, as well as the catch-up stroke in order to lengthen out our freestyle and return to the swimming because we're coming from zero with a better fitness and better technique. Does that help? Yes. Very helpful. I appreciate it. Okay. And, um, you, what was your name? I'm sorry. Ron Winkler. All right. Well, thanks Ron. Um, what are you getting ready for this year? Do you have any plans yet? Uh, potentially a 70.3, um, okay. in Atlantic city, New Jersey. So, um, right on. I know right on. That. Have if it a, few happens. a few athletes doing that. So, um, so an ocean swim, is another one where you also in the pool want to also get ready. How do I get ready in the pool for an ocean swim? And that is some head up drills that I have a lot of athletes do. And that is having your eyes out of the water, looking at the other end of the pool for the entire length. So you're getting used to swimming high on the water, not only for sighting, but to use those propping up arm muscles and chest muscles in your freestyle. And then secondly, keep in mind to throw your arms as though you had weights on your wrists or your watches, um, because in a wetsuit, we often don't bend our elbows the same way we do in a pool. 
And so if you're swimming more of a swingers type of stroke where you throw your arm instead of bend and bring it forward, um, that's more helpful in the open water environment. I notice that even now swimming open water to the pool, I switch strokes. I switch technique when I go to the open water. So something to keep in mind as you return to swimming now. Mm -hmm. Thank but you. Thanks for the question. Of course. All right. I see another one here. I had a, um, from Dave, I've had a great results, uh, with Z2 training since January. I've been building a strength training, um, three times a week routine over the last four months as well. Looking at November Ironman Florida race, at what point should I shift out of Z2 training and should I reduce the frequency or number of sets of my strength training? Well, the second part of that question is easier to answer than the first, but both are, are we can dive into the answers here. The most people back off on strength because they're fitting in the swimming and the running and maybe some stretching in general life as well. And so they find that the better use of their time is to do one of the three sports versus also spending the extra hour or maybe with the commute to and from the gym, the extra hour and a half, two hours um, at the gym. So there's, so that's something to keep in mind with your own scheduling. But also we want to think about where we get the most bang for our buck. And if we're, let's say our strength is running or cycling, well, maybe we want to spend that hour instead of strength training at, you know, in the pool or where we can just bring up um, the level of our sports. But the important thing is to keep that strength training, especially for Ironman Florida on a flat course like that. What we often run into is um, that we're in one or two, maybe three gears for most of the 112 miles, which makes this a completely different type of bike ride than many of us are experienced, whether it's climbing hills, rollers, downhills, where you have a chance to coast more and have momentum. In Florida, you're in a gear and it's like a trainer. So I would definitely stay on the strength because being able to hold one gear with a good power effort for a long period of time um, comes with good strength training as long as, as well as a good uh, trainer program. So, but then in general, I get this question a lot. When does Z2 sort of run its course? And the, the best answer there is when you notice that your body is no longer absorbing Z2 as an improvement in your paces or in your wattages efforts on the bike. How do we test for that? That's that five by one mile check-in test that's on the website as well. When you do the check-in test, because you're holding the five by one mile at a set heart rate, over time, month after month or every six weeks, you notice at same heart rate, pace goes down. And therefore you're seeing that my body is still absorbing the zone two work I'm doing. And when we're saying zone two work, for an Ironman training plan, it's usually around 60 to 75% of the time. The other 25 to 40% are zone three, zone four, maybe even some VO2 max intervals. And if you take a look at it, like I talk about on the podcast, if you're training 10 hours a week and 60%, six to seven and a half hours of it is zone two, doing two and a half hours to four hours of zone three, zone four work is a lot of high quality, fast, hard stuff. So it's not really that difficult to achieve 60 to 75% zone two. And it's a ratio you sort of wanna keep in general, but you might need to adjust the numbers for your zone three, zone four, VO2 max work if you're no longer absorbing the zone two work. But then once you notice that you're no longer absorbing it like a sponge, because our body is like a sponge with zone two, then I would shift to more zone three, longer steady state tempo work to sort of take the endurance fitness and the foundation we've built and sharpen that edge so that we're able to hold race effort. Zone three is usually upper zone three, mid to upper zone three is half Ironman effort. Upper zone two, low zone three is Ironman effort. If you sort of want to give it a number, and so your ability to hold zone three for longer periods of time will raise the bar on the zone two at that point. 
but only if you've reached a point where the zone two on the five by one mile test, or let's say you have a favorite loop you do every Sunday on a run or a bike ride, and you notice, well, I did that at the same heart rate at a higher wattage or at a faster running pace this week. That, that's another way to see it. And you know, all conditions are pretty much the same. So, but that's how I would go about it. Um, let me just make sure, Dave, are you on the call? Did that answer your question? I'll see if you're on the call here. He's muted. Okay. Yes, he did. I was- All right, any follow-up question with that? Um, I wanna give uh, everybody a chance to just, uh, with a brief follow-up uh, question. No, I think that answered it. I'm just trying to figure out, and it is, you, you're exactly right. At what point do I shift? from the time in the weights and in the core work to more time in the pool or um bike run you know yeah. it's weather i'm in indianapolis so as the weather gets nicer now we're getting outdoors again yeah yeah okay good i'm glad i i could help there and in general for anybody asking questions you know just feel free to send me an email and i will get back to you somehow with any type of follow-up um, yeah. Uh, next one. Uh, uh, I see Eric, Eric, a former athlete of mine. Hi, due to cancellations, etc. I'm looking at three very different events in relatively short period of time, escape from Alcatraz, the rut, and a double marathon, the SF double marathon, all should happen within 30 days. How should I look at training for this? Well, Eric, as you know, you probably should know my response for this. And that is you need to be extremely fit in order to be able to put those three events away in a month. And the challenge is less about the distances, but that it is that you absorb the event, not from a fitness standpoint, but from a motivation enjoyment standpoint, and you're not completely fried and burned and wondering what you're doing out here at event two, and then especially event three. This happens to a lot of people racing back-to-back -back Ironmans, even professionals, that you're out there and you're sorting ha having this deja vu moment, and it's hard to dig deep and ask your body to really pull a lot out of it, more than it is done in training, as well as more than it is really uh, able to attach sort of a sensation feeling to, because that's how our body works. It knows from the training what we've been doing and can then attach, you know, via some brain science and the default mode network that it can sort of recognize what we're doing and start working on the efficiencies and the mindset and the neurochemistry around that. And if you're constantly asking your body to do something in a 30 day period, that's way more than you've been able to train for or properly stack, that would be my biggest concern. And a motivation and B injury, right? So how do I get very ready for those three very different events? I would have to be extremely fit so that escape from Alcatraz really is just a training day, but the training day, because I'm so fit, allows me to still play around and have some fun in it, but I'm so fit. I can recover almost within 48 hours. Then the rut, which is already pretty difficult in the first place, um, is going to take different strength out of you. Um, it's going to beat you up, especially because of the sort of um, deeper muscle work that that requires from the hiking and the downhills and so forth into a paved double marathon. So your legs, is, your legs ability to handle a double pavement ma marathon without injury is going to be, have to show that the rut also didn't take much out of you. So one of those I would sort of throw out as a training day and only look to finish and then sort of take it as a survival finish, not look to have any type of special result on the double marathon. So, but yeah, that's going to require an insane amount of fitness. And there's definitely athletes out there that build up to this. And um, I've been conversations with an athlete of mine who wants to sort of do an Ultraman and Badwater in the same year and do well in both of them. But you have to, again, it's one of those scenarios that they're far enough apart, but 
your ability to sustain the training for Ultraman and Badwater, as well as put that Ultraman behind you in a healthy way, adrenally, muscularly, and mentally, to then continue to absorb in the months into a Badwater, which is a whole nother brutal uh, breakdown of the body, mind, and spirit. That's the challenge. And therefore, fitness really, really deep, long-lasting fitness that you built over a long time becomes crucial in those um, cases. So Eric, if you have more questions about that, you know, as always, feel free to email me. And uh, yeah, I hope all is well. Um, next one, is there any real benefits mm -hmm. to carb loading prior to events? Well, we'll bring in Emily here in a moment, but um, yeah, she's laughing because she's like, here we go, Chris, answering my question again. She's sitting right there. Um, carb loading, um, the way it used to be done as it came about in the late 70s and early 80s um, is no longer applied the same way because it almost overstresses the body with that much carbs and overloading the system, it's sort of a, a weird wording around it, and it creates a false understanding. Um, eating a little bit more than you usually eat on the night before a big endurance event earlier in the day, you don't want to do it at much after six, um, and I'll go into that in a moment, but eating a little bit more of what your body typically eats with maybe a, a little bit more of a focus on some carb uh, foods is better than trying to overdo it or over, um, load on carbs. You want to go, Em? <laughs> you have to turn down your volume. Oh. Otherwise we hear each other through the speaker. Um, yeah, I mean that the carb loading has gone out the window, but it's to understand it's just a huge glycogen hit. And so depends how metabolically flexible your body is and what your body can use as fuel. And if you've trained it to do that, um, to use a variety of resources as far as fats and carbs. Um, so like Chris said, in general, you want to maybe eat more, a little bit more and the carbs being a little bit more complex the pancake feast and the white pasta feast, I think are out the window, um, but more complex carbs, I guess, like sweet potatoes or brown rice and whole grains, things like that can be helpful. Um, again, it just, it, the amount of it and the loading of it and the, um, it's gonna depend on what your typical diet is and what your body is efficient at burning for fuel. Ideally you can burn you know, fats and carbs, and you can have that switch, um, as you're training and racing, but that's a training and a nutrition combo. Does that answer question? Yes. Perfect. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And with that, hold on. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> um, also uh, that brought up an interesting point. So when we eat our dinner, our bigger dinner, our bigger meal the night before an event, what we want to do is have that meal a lot earlier in the evening than we usually do. A, we go to bed earlier. So we want to keep that gap similar, but also we're getting up earlier the next morning prior to the race. And with that, we're also going to be eating breakfast um, earlier than we usually do. And so you want to keep that gap. So if I'm getting up at 4 a.m. for, let's say, a 6 a.m. race start, and I want to have breakfast at, at 4.30, well, if I'm having a dinner at 7.30 or 8 at night, I am not going to be hungry to have the, a proper race breakfast at 4.30 in the morning. So what I usually like to say, I typically have dinner around 6 p.m. in my normal life and have breakfast the next morning, let's say, at 8 a.m., right? That's a 12 to 14-hour gap, let's say. So similarly, in this case, going to bed earlier, I would have a dinner at 4.30 at, um, on the night before the event. And then the next morning, I'm having breakfast at 4.30. So a similar 12-hour gap. So that our body processes and absorbs, as well as flushes out in a similar 
time frame as um, we do in, in our regular when we're at home, when we're just training. So and that takes practice. All right. Next question is, uh, um, I have a question, Yvonne, um, using, but you're going to ask via the audio. Why don't you jump in? I figured it would be easier just to speak it rather than type out too much. Uh, Good to hear from you. you again. It's nice to see you as well. Um, I, I caught up on the coach's corner today too, which is always a uh, spot on. But thank you to you and uh, Emily and David for hosting this. Uh, very much appreciated. Um, in the spirit of self-curated events, um, and this being my 50th year, I'm setting out, I'm into week two, but running 150K a week for 50 weeks, uh, with the 50th being on my 50th birthday. So I guess uh, I, in my head, I'm thinking, I can just sort of add in the, the strength and the intervals as if I'm training as per usual, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything you would recommend in terms of timing of, of when to do the strength work, when to do the intervals, making sure I don't overtax the body, but stay consistent. And also Emily, um, as a vegan, any nutritional advice in terms of making sure I recover well, I think I know what I'm doing, but I don't know how much, and I know that this is an organic process at the best of times and what might work this week might not work in four months. Um, but any sort of uh, advice you can give in terms of the recovery, especially um, in the, the day of the day after would be really appreciated. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, first I would say, why don't you slide over here so that we don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> wait, wait, I mean, whenever you're ready to be on camera, but also, Look, this is really cool. There she comes. She's leaving that one and she's joining this one. Um, that being said, I'm sorry, did you say you already started the 50Ks and are heading towards or or what you're you still have yet to start them? No, I started Saturday last week. Uh, I'm trying to time it so that the 50th one that I do is on my birthday, so March of next year. Okay. So you're and one in. I'm one in. Uh, number two is tomorrow morning. So Okay. Okay. So, and you said you're running 150k a week or 50k a week. I'm uh, I'm doing a couple of short ones during the week, but the objective is to do one 50k run per week. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, let me ask you this: uh, Why would we are we doing intervals? What's your intention around doing the intervals? Um, during the week? Are you looking to maintain speed, strength, leg turnover, technique, form? I'm just curious, but I mean, there's definitely benefits, but I'm curious as to why you feel how to, because that will help us decide when to insert them. I, 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 get, I don't want to lose the leg strength. I feel like I've gained, okay. uh, particularly since the year I spent um, training with you, I think it was three years ago. The focus has really been on maintaining that leg strength that I have gained. Okay. And, and I've also foolishly or not, I've signed up for the, uh, the hundred miler that I've finally completed on my third attempt. And that's in October and, um, get to the start line, do as much of it as I can, and then take the next two weeks off, three weeks off. I know that's kind of foolish, but I don't know where I'm going to be at that point. So right. I just, want, I want to maintain at the very least the leg strength that I have gained. Mm -hmm. Um, cause those 50 K's on the weekends will be, either city runs or as soon as we can access the park across the river, get some more hills involved and more trail running uh, yeah. type. So I guess in my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to lose the strength I've gained. I'm not worried about speed anymore. Okay. I've, I finally let go of the ego. Um, so I guess, yeah, just maintaining the leg strength that I already have. Okay. So the, the main point that I would keep in mind with those intervals is surely build into it. We don't want to force okay. anything. You're going to accumulate a fair amount of fatigue um, over the next few weeks and months. And so therefore asking your body and well, or staying very in tune and listening to it so that maybe your interval is a 10 minute interval, but it takes you eight minutes to really get to the speed or the effort or the heart rate that you're looking for. And then it's only right. two minutes of work. So be it. You're still having the training effect. One, gradually building up to that. And two, um, that short stimulus that allows you to 
short uh, recover from that short effort effectively. Right. So that's the one aspect. The other aspect to keep in mind is um, the rest of the time you really want to recover and feel good about um, trusting that what you're doing every week by running a 50K is going to be quite beneficial because of the strength that you're doing it on tired legs or the last 10 miles slash 15K are basically strength work if you're maintaining some sort of good form because you have to keep your body together in order to put forth that effort um, or that output. Um, And then, so if you're going into the weekend structuring it around, maybe because of the strength work being important to you, now it's no longer a question of repetitions. It's a question of the movement and staying connected to the strength that you actually do have, right? And so from that standpoint, keep the weight lighter. And if that's your anchor workout of the week, I would would go from there and say, all right, well, I'm going to run my next 50K on Saturday. So therefore the best outcome for my week and the intentions I set for my week on the outcomes I'm looking to have will be to anchor my workouts of strength on let's say Wednesday, or Tuesday, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then maybe sort of uh, get the legs going again two days later, Thursday, right? So if you do strength on the set, uh, the Tuesday and some intervals and leg turnover on the Thursday, you're doing your endurance in the 50K on Saturday. And maybe on Monday, the following week, sh- shake out jog, you know? Yeah. And also don't, uh, don't overlook strides with yeah. as your intervals, right? Great way, again, because we get a lot of the benefits of quality intervals um, with shorter stuff because we recover quicker from them. We still get the physiological effect and the high heart rate effect and the VO2 oxygen uptake effect and all those physiological outcomes, but we want to be able to recover from them. So space them out. And the biggest thing I would say is trust yourself because being able to do that 50K a week is building the fitness every week to where you want to go. And so, and if you're feeling good, you know, you could always stack them. So let's say one week you do a Saturday and a Tuesday, and then you give yourself 10 days off, Mm -hmm. off, but like lighter workouts and some recovery workouts and some easy jogging. So that then the next one is 10 days later. So you really use that gap, you know, David and I sort of had, had our side conversations about iron cowboy and sort of what he was doing. And, and I actually had them with Rich as well and uh, when I was down there. And it's just, there's no wiggle room. And so there's no listening to the body if there's not that gap. And when he did an Ironman in all 50, 50 days in, uh, or his original challenge, there was still a gap he could manipulate and listen to his body. So that's what you want to use to your advantage. Use the time you have really effectively in order to then set your intentions for the following week. And I would do that. And even with that, I mean, now we're getting into sort of what I like to do with my athletes is like that your journal is going to be your Bible that week, because it's going to have all the details of what you want to do for the coming week with intentions and how you want to set up the ideal week and your recovery with the emotions and the inputs that you just had from that 50K. You have a 50K to think about your week. (laughs) You want to capture that whole time and think about how you're going to structure the next week. Right. And that is all great live feedback for you to have the most effective sort of continuous 50 weeks, which is pretty incredible to do. So, and did you want to jump in here with um, some thoughts around recovery and nutrition and being vegan and Um, being vegan? I mean, the, the, your question or the, biggest problem I see is it's a protein question. Um, so you're going to have to supplement and because recovering that quickly, that much time after time, after time, um, be, you know, the vegan diet's very carb heavy. Um, so people end up just being hungry all the time and eating all day long, which is going to overtax your gut. And, um, if the gut goes, then your nutrition goes and your energy goes and everything else. So, um, it, I'd say your biggest focus is trying to keep up on your protein and whether, and deciding how you're going to supplement that, um, and making that your focus, the rest will fall into place because every, all the 
plant proteins are basically wrapped in either a carb or a fat. So you don't really have to, you know, they'll fall into place. Right. Um, you know, but. Are there any specific, I mean, in this case, are there products you would recommend? Because in this unique case, if you have suggestions, it might be worth. Yeah. I mean, everybody's different how they want to get the proteins and what, why you're vegan in the first place and what your beliefs are, or what not, but I mean, protein powders, um, a hemp seed or type, or I think the cleanest and most efficient, um, but you're just going to need a powder <laughs> to get that many grams of protein that you need. I, I, I think that's the, um, you know, uh, other foods you probably are aware of. I don't know your current diet, but you said, you think you do a good job. So you're probably aware of, you know, peas and hemp seeds and, yeah. um, all the, you know, high pre high protein plant foods. Um, so I'd say you are going to have to decide on some, some type of supplement to get that done. And maybe, you know, even maybe some branch chain amino acids or some, you know, um, amino acid supplement, just to make sure you're getting all of the amino acids, um, in the, in the profile. How long are the 50 K's um, going to be taking according to your sort of thoughts? I, I guess it depends on the, um, it depends on the terrain, like the, the more city type stuff will be somewhere in the last week's took me a little under five and a half hours okay. and just kind of putzing around at a, a happy pace, probably a little on the fast side, to be honest. But I, I know myself well enough at this point that of course the first one's going to be faster than, you know, five, six weeks from now, certainly a few months from now. And as soon as we can access the trails just outside of, of town, I mean, obviously with the ups and downs, that'll be a little slower. And I, I kind of want to throw some variety in there as well. You know, last year I ran a marathon on my street that's 200 meters long, you know, like, so that kind of thing, just to try to keep things interesting or mentally challenging, but somewhere in the five and a half to six and a half range, knowing that some days are going to be longer than that too. Yeah. So. Well, and you have all day, right? You, you give yourself yeah, exactly. that day and that's half the fun. Um, yeah. yeah. If you need um, more input or specifics regarding that, also feel free to email me and I'll put you in touch. But, that's great. Um, and she also has um, plenty of ideas with regards to specific supplements that she might be willing to share directly with you versus us sitting here promoting sure. and plugging a product line. <laughs> no, but, but I appreciate knowing what you guys know works and it, uh, the more feedback we get as athletes, the, the better. Yeah. So thank you both. Do you them. have a specific nutritional challenge or challenge with the vegan diet to begin with? Or I, I mean, they know more than anyone else who eats vegetarian or vegan. It's the B12. It's the uh, making sure we get our proteins. I think we get lots of proteins between chickpeas and beans and, um, you know, the almond butters and things of that nature. And, and I hadn't even thought of it, but you, and you say you get the fats, you obviously with, with the vegetable protein, but making sure that that is a focus weekly is going to be, is going to be huge and making sure I get the, the right foods, not necessarily too much food, which is a, a, a rabbit hole I can easily get into because it, which, cause you're right. Like it's just eat and eat and eat. And then Monday comes around and I was like, okay, yeah. And I'd say, I mean, one of those things and just in general, not vegan or not, um, whatever style you eat is not getting into that eating all day long is more of, you know, again, cause then your body's just, it's trying to do everything all at once, trying to process yeah. digestion and trying to recover muscles and trying to make your brain work. And, you know, so yeah. having those breaks, having clear meal times and then the break, um, you know, so trying to, trying to figure that out. And like I said, I feel like many vegans are just, they're just hungry all the time because it's so carb heavy. Um, and then, so they end up eating all day long and then yeah. the gut gets quite taxed and then. And it's a stress. It's still a stress. It's a stress. A stress then, is a stress. Yeah. yeah. So nothing yeah. about, you know, so it's just more about being conscious about meal times and getting enough at meal times. And again, I think if you focus on trying to get, you know, the protein parts in the rest will fall into place a little bit easier. Fantastic. And that's easy enough to get the powders and, and put them in the smart way. So thank yeah. you. I don't want to, I don't want to go on and on about veganism yeah. here, folks. My apologies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, but I also there's think there's a few of you guys out there. It's okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot of us. Um, that being said, also, though, you are you have a great experiment for yourself in front of you with the next 50 weeks. And I would, you know, not to get too geeked out on the, the spreadsheets and the data, but also the, the more um, data points you give yourself a score of one to 10 in. Again, it's a long period of time. So being able to look back a month and see when I was eating at this time of day, this is how I felt, or this is how I felt after two hours of running. So I do that with a lot of my multi-day stage racers. It's like in their simulations or Ultraman situations, you want to understand what works best for you. And because you have so many weeks of doing this, you can come out with a pretty clean understanding of what really works best for you. Yeah. And then the other thing is you said with that hundred miler, you know, you probably be able to get through it. But again, that's where I would stack that next 50 K on the last possible yeah. day and yeah. swallow the pride there and walk that one. Yeah. Right. For sure. And again, sure. you have all day. So yeah. maybe walk, run or something easy on trails, but that, you know, man, I did a hundred miler two weeks ago or 13 days ago. Cause you stacked it. So that's exactly you know, um, and, but yet I still was able to get through a 50 K and a 50 K, you know, 10 days prior to that. So yeah. there's ways to finagle it, but you really just be good to yourself and walk them here and there if you have yeah. to, because you'd rather get to the 50th and look back and go, I did all 50. And that's again, back to our intention standpoint for everybody. Um, and all of the athletes that I work with is as if you set your clear intention as my only goal, is very simple. I want to get in 50, 50 Ks and finish on my 50th birthday. Then you can let go of all the other pressures and expectations along the way, because you're still reaching the overarching goal of that nugget that you set for yourself. Yeah. And you want to simplify those. So you don't want to get caught up in narrative and expectations as you're out there, as you're training, as questions come up, right? And so for all of us, whenever we set really clear intentions with our priorities, we simplify our life actually. Yeah. And we Absolutely. take the thought and the concerns and the worries out of it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I, I appreciate this a lot. Of course. All right, Scott, I think uh, you said you're happy to ask on audio. Scott had to jump, I think. Okay. Um, he had a question. I have a question about time in zone two and the value for training less than 10 hours per week. Well, um, for, uh, for sure, there's value in it. And uh, for sure, it's again, it's a stackable thing of time. Just because we don't have a lot of time to train, it doesn't mean that we're not accumulating over many weeks and months the same amount of time relative to who we are. So many people would like to say, well, a thousand miles of running, how do I get in a thousand miles of running at zone two to really have the physiological benefits I'm looking for? Well, you can do that by, you know, doing less 10 hours a week or eight hours a week or six hours a week. But if they're all at zone two, it's still a thousand miles at zone two, right? This isn't a zone two is less about a recovery question than it is a consistency question. And that's one of the parts of zone two training and endurance training in general that is a big part of our philosophy is it's not a question of how much you do, it's how many days in a row we do it, because that means we're absorbing it, we're recovering from it, and we can do it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And therefore, the benefits of endurance and the physiology that comes with it start taking place versus occasionally having a great 18, 20 hour week. And then for two, three, four weeks, only having a 12 hour week or a 10 hour week, I'd rather have 10, 10 hour weeks. So that's a, that's a question that comes up frequently. And the value is more, can I do it many weeks in a row versus can I, am I looking for big training hours? Um, all right. Anybody else have a question? Chris, I have a question. This is Aaron. Yeah. Um, I have a question about, um, training with the amount of uh, fuel and water and electrolytes uh, for the event. So mm -hmm. during my training days, my long training days, do I try to load my pack that I paddle with? Uh, do I try to load that up fully 
so that I can get the balance my on my board and the like um, moving moving forward. Yeah. Um, so Aaron is one of my athletes, and he's a stand-up um, paddler for endurance distances. Um, and he's getting ready for an 11 day. Well, it used to be 11 day. Now he's this year's just going straight through. Um, he's, he switched groups from 11 individual days to now we're just going to do that distance straight through. Um, so, uh, the, the main thing there is that we get a good understanding around what we need in training and knowing that it's going to change a little bit in racing as well as that we want to prepare for circumstances that um, knock us off our plan. And so for you, having a variety of different foods and drink along with you and first going by feel and seeing how you're going with, of course, the baseline of guys is a minimum 175 calories an hour and 20 ounces of fluids. I always say water. And then women is minimum 125 an hour with also about, you know, 16 to 20 ounces of water. Those are sort of the floors given the output that we're putting out an hour running, cycling, paddling, swimming, whatever it is. And then we can adjust from there. We also want to keep in mind that it takes a while for the body to adjust and adapt to taking in food and drink while we're also moving, doing our training slash event. So therefore that's why it's so important to train it. We're also teaching our body to absorb calories and hydration while doing said activity. And as we all know, um, when we're training, when we're doing said sport, the blood is going to the working muscles. It's not really going to our stomachs to help us digest. And so therefore we want to sort of teach it to do the hybrid engine at both times, battery and engine power at the same time. And so that is unique to everybody. And so from there, you can go by general numbers, but the best way is to understand this is how it works for me. And this is how I've sort of progressed to see how it is on hot days, on cold days, on windy days, on really hard effort days, on easy days, um, you know, further into my training, three, four hours in what my needs are versus the first two hours. Many ultra runners, for example, know that, you know, by hour seven or eight, your fuel needs are completely different than hours two and three, mainly because you're behind on calories. There's no way to keep up. And you really do start to get quite hungry and the needs and the burn rate and so forth starts really um, asking for more. And then you eat a little bit more and then you're like, I'm good for now, but you have to continue eating like that or else you start hitting these hunger pangs. And so Aaron, that's the main thing. I would have a variety of foods and make a good, um, uh, keep good notes, which I know you do on, uh, what has been working and continue down that path of narrowing it down and narrowing it down so that, you know, okay, these five products, no matter what work, even if I need to catch up on calories, or even if it's super hot, or even if I swallowed a bunch of salt water and I just threw up and I don't really want to do more. I mean, you're stand-up paddling, but for my um, um, paddlers, true paddlers who are on their stomachs and on their knees, they're often getting a lot of salt water in them. And then they also have to know what it's like to eat with a stomach full of salt water. So um, again, understanding different conditions you'll be in, as well as for you being quite fatigued or in the dark and so forth. Same for me and my swimming across Tahoe, understanding what I'm gonna be wanting to eat at six, seven hours in and what people can actually throw at me slash drop on me because I'm not allowed to touch anything is going to be different than the first hours or two or what it's gonna be like eating and drinking in the dark and you know lying on my stomach all the time eating versus upright when you're running and cycling. So practice and simulate and practice and simulate. And that's what the long weekends are always for a great opportunity for us to apply our fueling and hydration strategy. Did that help Aaron? Yeah, that's, that's great. I, and that's what I've done up to this point. So I'm, I'm glad I'm continuing on the right path anyway. Yeah. And especially now where you're switching over to sort of having more time to train and we'll have a few more simulations and we'll really have some fun here now. Um, that's where you want to sort of have a special page in your note-taking of 
your nutrition. And I say this to a lot of athletes, it's a completely different part of the, the, the training peaks and the logging of how am I responding to the nutrition and the hydration? And what am I observing? When are my mood swings, right? We all know from long days, there's times in an event um, when we're sort of like, oh, this is awful. And I feel terrible. And I thought I trained for this and I feel terrible. I feel out of shape and I thought I would feel better. And then you're like, you're literally out of the Snickers bar commercial. You like have a bite and you're suddenly in a great mood. You're like, ah, everything's fine. I feel great. It's like, ah, it was all calories related, right? It's just once our blood sugar drops, it starts messing with our head. And we want to save that cognitive load for when things already get, they're going to get difficult. And so as long as we work on that, that bathtub strategy that I usually talk about, we want to keep it half full or from draining too much. We know we're not going to keep the bathtub full because there's no way to keep up the burn with the burn rate of the activity we're doing. So therefore, how do we stop the drain from going too quickly? And that's, that's the big picture focus. Good. All right. Anybody else? Some great questions today. So, and I think the, the type of questions that really are beneficial to everybody. Chris, I've got a question for you as a, for you as a coach and an athlete entering stuff into training peaks and logs and notes, what, uh, what type of information on a daily basis is valuable to you? Yeah. What we're putting in. Yeah. This is the question. This is a question that comes up frequently. Um, the, so I, I compare it to um, a sports event and a color analyst versus the play-by-play. The play. And the play-by-play, play, I don't need to know because I wrote the workout. <laughs> so I know what was intended and what we were doing, but the color is the key, right? Understanding how you're feeling, what you're observing, um, what you noticed versus last week, um, how you're growing from that. So for example, that might be man, I did this course last week and I felt way better. I have heavy legs today. And looking back, I can see it's probably because I did the strength work late at night on a Friday and it's Sunday morning and I haven't really recovered from it. That's great notes. There's a lot in there because you can break that down into needing more recovery and us timing the strength work differently, but you also noticing and not forcing it. Um, then there's other times where we read notes like, I'm always hungry today. Um, I had a rest day today, but I felt like I was eating all day, right? Or I was super thirsty. Well, that tells us also how you're recovering or how your body's trying to catch up and it's still giving you the proper insights and signals for what we need or slept terrible or might be some recovery needed or something taxed you too much or couldn't achieve the intervals. Well, there's times we write the intervals in order for you not to achieve them. That's the whole point. We don't want you achieving them on the first try. Otherwise, they're not really intervals. They're supposed to be on the far edge of what you, and you, you graduate to those intervals, right? And now you're crushing them. Well, now it's time to do a new benchmark. Um, that's the growth versus just always crushing the intervals. While it feels great, it's not progressing us along the path that we're oftentimes looking for. So it's more the color um, and how your current self feels versus your past self. Um, and because a lot of the workouts and the training isn't necessarily that different than the weeks before, it's how you're progressing through the training. Yeah, that's perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's storytelling, quite honestly. It's your mm -hmm. ability to capture your sensations and what you observe and to be able to put that in a paragraph to me um, or to your coach for people listening, um, because then they have the tools to properly give you the training according to you and how you're absorbing and having the adaptations that the coach is looking to get. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. All right. Uh, we have another one here. The field tests for determining zones five by one, et cetera. Do you do them all? Do you do them all the way to the event or stop at a certain time prior to it? Well, the field tests, and there's field tests and then there's check-ins. So the check-ins, the five by one check-in is at a constant heart rate, same heart rate each time. And we watch the pace go down, hopefully, um, not go up. 
well, it depends on how people describe pace and improvement. Um, and then uh, the field tests, those are five by one at best effort, right? Or like 10K run effort. And that one minute recovery isn't really enough to really have you recover. So it's a different load on you. As well, same as the bike field test is very similar like that too. Um, it's intense enough with recovery that you can somewhat get your mind around the time of the interval, but it's not enough recovery for you to literally recover from and flush out the system to have a dramatically different effect. Keep in mind also physiologically, we're looking to drain the system of, you know, kill the anaerobic system to see where the aerobic system really kicks in and use the first few intervals to blow that out in order to get the data. This is something David and I talk a lot on our weekly calls is that if the, if the athlete builds into their five by one mile test, well, then we're not getting good data because they're not emptying the tank so that the last three one mile repeats are really valuable data because they're, they've depleted their glycogen stores and now they're just truly running on aerobic threshold sort of power or effort. Um, so before an event, you know, it, the testing is one of those things you want to do it, let's say quarterly in general to see how you're progressing. And if your prescription of the training is working, or in our case, we don't do the testing that often because we can see based off of some of the training input and some of the specific workouts that we do every month, um, that we can see that the athlete is progressing or not. Um, and so we don't do a lot of field tests. Now, do we do a lot of check-in tests? That's up to the athlete. If they want more data and more input to see how they're progressing black and white on paper, we give it to them as much as they want. As of a couple of weeks before the event, we're usually focused on different things and we have the simulations to really show the progress. When the athlete does a, a simulation like three, four weeks out um, and gets a good sense of sort of all the race paces and so on, it's a confidence building, boosting effect that people usually migrate away from the check-in and get more excited of the numbers that they're seeing and sort of how things are going. So we just had one of those with David, one of David's athletes a couple of days ago where, you know, we did a 70.3 simulation with like, I think a 60 and six it was or something like that. I don't remember which one it was. Um, one of the two 50 and six or, or two hours and, and six miles or something like that. That's so, exactly what it was. Yeah. Two hours at race pace or race wattage or race feel or race effort. And then sort of six by one or five by one mile off the bike after a 15, 20 minute warm up where you're running at race pace. And there's a lot of variations that we throw in there. Let's say you want to run seven thirties in a race. So we do them on an eight minute send off or we do them on 7.30 send-off. And so whatever time you get in faster than your 7.30 send-off, that's your rest. And let's see how many of them you can do. <laughs> so that the athlete eventually ends up doing, A, all the events, all the miles at 7.30, but also the last two are usually <laughs> 15 minutes straight, and then they blow up. Um, but that's enough to give them like, wow, I, that felt pretty good. I feel pretty close to being at the fitness I need for a 70.3 in a few weeks. So that's where the, the simulation replaces the field testing. All right. I think we have time for one more question. If anybody still has one, we have five minutes here. Um, if you've been holding back, just throw one out there. Did you have one um, from email, David? Sure. Yeah, I have one from a gentleman named Nick, and uh, he is a, a fan of the podcast. He's a long-distance runner, and his question is, "My, um, I do Z2 runs, and they're leaving me in a lot of discomfort with my calves, so much to the point that I feel a day of a day off afterwards is needed and surely this can't be right, correct? I did a 12K run last night in zone two and I'm feeling it right now. So he's wondering how to deal with calves. Yeah, I would also first question what zone two heart rates that he's using. If he used, for example, our data, which he might've, or if he's just using the Training Peaks formula plugin. Um, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're close, but other times 
um, they're off. So I would first, that would be the first question I would have in return. And then secondly, there is a sweet spot here too. We do want to be somewhat running um, if we're going to have to go into zone two. And so there's the, there's the space we get stuck in. We don't want to run so slowly that we have to change our running form, that it's not really running. It's that fast walking with your hips flying to side to side. We don't want to do that. We'd either want to run until we get out of zone two and then walk, but not in the gray zone in between, because we don't want to promote that bad form, bad hip landing, bad foot landing and so forth. We want to run while we can in zone, zone two. And then once we're out of zone two, go back to walking. And as we get fitter in zone two, we'll hopefully be able to spend more and more time running, truly running in zone two versus this stress on the calves because the feet are on the ground too long on the swing in the back of our stride. That can, that makes a lot of sense um, and too much ground time, right? It just asks the calves to do a lot of work. So that's the second point I would say. And then thirdly, we would have to probably roll those things out and get some you know time spent with them as well as some calf sleeves to keep them compressed. It's remarkable to me how many people love putting on calf sleeves, not socks, but sleeves um, for shin splints, for calf issues, for Achilles issues. It makes a big difference. I can't explain why, but I recommend it to so many people and they just seem to say it improves it for many dramatically and others enough that makes running tolerable. Do you have any input there, Dad? Oh yeah. So I'm unfortunately one of these people who has calves as the weak link in my running. And it's very, very frustrating to this day. It started a couple months ago. And so I have a laundry list of things and they all work. And I've been getting pretty clinical about this. So one of them- I would is, keep it to three. Okay, I'll keep it to three. So one is range of motion. Your calves need to be able to bend, right? You can do a knee test where you're keeping your foot away from a wall that you're facing. And I, I don't remember the distance because it depends on how tall you are, but something like, you know, two, three, four inches, you can look up the guides online and they can, when you bend your, your calf, your ankle, and you can see if your knee touches the wall from a certain distance, that's the test. You can look that up. Uh, so or you, you can email make, you. Or they can email me. That's true. David at aimcoaching.com. Amazing. And then um, a slant board is the one piece of stretching equipment that I have uh, that I a plant you know, board, a slant board. So it's just a piece of wood at a yep. 30 degree angle. And I stand on that and then I'll bend forward and get the hamstrings as well. Cause it's all a connected chain. And that is, that was a game changer to begin with. That also helped with plantar fasciitis. It just vanished when I started doing that. Then Warm-up is mission critical, and you'll see this a lot with track athletes, but for whatever reason, endurance athletes tend to skimp on this. You want to walk on your toes. You want to um, do light jumping. You want to lean against a wall at that 45-degree rake angle and kind of walk the dog, so to speak, right? You're, you're using your calves with less load. Uh, you're getting them fired up before you just start doing high-load 4X bodyweight bouncing on them, a.k.a. running. Uh, you also want to warm up your tibialis anterior. It's an extremely important muscle. Well, it's a group of muscles technically, but we regard it as the one that dorsiflexes the foot, right? It pulls your toes up towards you. And this is an extremely neglected muscle. And unless you're a pro and then it's not. And uh, with a lot of them, they, they will walk on their heels. And when you do that, you feel the burn in the front of your shins. That's an important thing to do. And then the big one, the big unlock for me has been differentiating the soleus from the other calf muscles. So I used to do calf raises all the time, hashtag power lifter and rugby player and all that. And, um, and you would do them standing up and that's great, except it completely skips the soleus, which is the dominant calf muscle when you run. So if you're having calf soreness, then I would put a laser on the soleus. The way you train it is by bending your knees at 90 degrees and then you do calf raises. So there's a machine at the gym, which is a seated calf raise. It's there for a reason. Uh, and you can also do this by just bending your knees, standing there in an air squat position and doing calf raises. If you do that, then you're not going to have problems. That's See, this is why we love David. <laughs> He's the perfect addition to this coaching business. I love it. Or you can just wear high heels all day and therefore you're fine. <laughs> yes, you should definitely wear high heels. The higher, the better. 
or figure out why you were using cats. Yeah, and or or as Emily just says, and she's a little bit, she's always big picture on this. Figure out why you're overusing your cats. So um, that being said. Um, I think that's it. That's our hour. I really appreciate everybody for coming on and joining us with some questions and some input and some fun idea exchange. And we'll have another one of these probably in a quarter or so. Um, that is in three months, not in a quarter of an hour. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that went great for our first one. And I appreciate you all. And please, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to just send David or I an email, Chris or David at aimcoaching.com. And then we can maybe follow up with any type of individual needs that you might have. All right. Thank you very much. Of course, you're all so Thanks, very Chris. welcome. And I will talk to you all hopefully soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you have any of your own questions, or if you have any feedback about how we can make this podcast more beneficial to you, please contact us at chris at aimcoaching.com or david at aimcoaching.com. We really enjoy hearing from you. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, tell them about it. If there is a specific section you think someone might like and you want to share it with them, then there are timestamps in the description and you can tell them where to jump to in the episode. If you want to, you can leave a review for this podcast on iTunes. In closing, I asked Chris for a really good quote to end the podcast, and he did not disappoint. So in the words of Viktor Frankl, what is to give light must endure burning. Train well. <laughs>